ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of The Overlap. I'm joined, of course, again by my friend, Rian. Rian and I spent a good portion of the weekend together. We watched football. We hung out in the backyard. It was a good time. Of, of course, I'm, I'm completely skipping over the fact that I spent two hours of my day on Saturday watching El Clasico. Um, but that's besides the point. We're, we're talking about England today. So, uh, Rian, we watched uh, United Chelsea draw that honestly I wish I didn't have to talk about on the pod, but I don't even want to start there. I'll start with, with how you doing. It's, it's, been, it's been a great day for me with the Bartomeu news, which we will get to it at some point. But let's, let's start with you, Rian. How was the rest of your weekend? My weekend was good. Yeah, it was nice to see you. I saw, I saw you after El Clasico, so Elise and I were originally planning on watching it together, and Elise was not awake in time to get over <laughs> to get to my apartment in time to get there. But he, he did show up for the Chelsea United game. I did, which, which was which was nice. But no, the weekend was good. The weekend was good. Um, I mean, all these weekends seem pretty similar, right? So it's just it's more Getting like molds together. Uh, it's like the impending winter that is coming. That's it's just the Sunday daylight savings ends at, and sunset is going to be at four fifty one p.m. and that's just dude, uh, that's gosh. oh god, that's terrible. It's it's already like we're recording this and it's about six p.m. and it's basically dark out. So you're telling me an hour earlier it's going to get dark out? It's depressing as hell. So can't wait for that. Um, but yeah, so happy things clearly going on in Rion's life <laughs> all around. But uh, I'm glad you had a good weekend. It was good to see you. There's a great spot by Rion's apartment. Obviously, not everyone who's listening knows where Rion's apartment is. But right by Rion's apartment that has great like Mediterranean food. And we went in the middle of the Chelsea United game. So good. Just great, great respite from that horrendous showing of a, of a football match. So... Rayon, why don't we kick it off somewhere else before I blow my brains out talking about that game? Let's talk about uh, the team that your father so diligently supports, unfortunately. Manchester City, the team, I don't want to even say blessed or graced by Pep's fifth season. I almost want to say cursed in some ways, and it hurts me to say that. But a City team that drew against West Ham, a City team that is aspiring to win the league again after it getting stripped away by Liverpool last season, a city team that wants to win the Champions League. Yet they are, and I can't believe this is 100% true, at mid-table now. Rion, what's going on with City? This is this has to be this ha- honestly has to be worrying. Yeah, I I talked to my dad yesterday. I gave him a ring because I wanted to know his thoughts on like what's going on with this. City team as they drew this weekend to West Ham 1-1 a game where they probably should have done better again you know they had the same issues in terms of being able to finish chances a couple Raheem Sterling bad misses it was something that I thought that we thought was kind of out of his game but is not fully I mean I'm not gonna say it's not fully it's it's just it's just the run of form that that the team themselves are on right now and one of the things that my dad brought up that really, really is interesting is he's saying that he feels that the team is not pressing to the same extent as you saw in past years. And I think you could, you've seen that 
in a few games with the Manchester City, they seem like a team, I don't want to say devoid of energy, but they they look off. And that was one of the words that, my, that, that he used was that there's something that just seems off about this team, right? And I wonder if some of that has to do with the impending contract situation that that is going on with Pep Guardiola, who's in his final year of his contract and has said multiple times that he will not be signing a new contract unless, or sorry, he won't, he won't sign a new contract if he thinks that he is no longer providing value to the club, which I think is really interesting. And I mean, it, it feels in line with the type of man that, that Pep Guardiola is, but I think that the problems are more on the field than anything else at this point, because it feels early to say that oh, the players aren't playing for him or the players are affected by the, by the uncertainty around his future. Right. I think that's something that maybe we can come back to maybe sometime in like December or January as the, as the season goes on and it gets more, I think awkward. Right. But on the field, there's there's something missing that you you wonder now how much of losing Leroy Sané is part of the problem, right? A, a team that used to play with a lot of width in Sané and Sterling, and you know my dad mentioned that Sterling's been playing a bit out of position at least in this season, playing more, I think coming in centrally a lot central, a lot more. And Manchester city doesn't start with two wingers as, as frequently as they did in the seasons that they won the league back to back. And you see Phil Foden coming into the team and it's just a team that's definitely has trouble defending as, as we've seen in the past. And what's happening is they're not pressing to the same intensity as we're used to from a Manchester city team. And the knock on effect of that is Rodri is getting caught in many situations where he has to defend one V one or he has to defend two V one. And he's not that type of midfielder. He's not, he's not in Golo Conte, right? He's not, he's not someone who's going to, break up moves like that. He's not a Thomas Partey. He's, he's not that type of holding midfielder. And so he's being put in a position that's extremely difficult. And that is bringing a lot more pressure onto their back line. And it's overall, I mean, it's, it's, we can probably say fairly safely that this is not the most talented, uh, team in the league at this moment right and my question comes to you Elias here is there haven't been a lot of seasons where Pep Guardiola has coached a team that is almost definitively not the most talented overall and and I I think that we can say that for Manchester City because of their defense even though Ruben Diaz has come in and, and it has done well and and as well as he can really and has not played with Americ Laporte a lot more than I believe just the one game against Leeds where I thought they looked like a good partnership but there's also problems up front and and Aguero's the only 
striker right now that it seems like City can rely on to score goals, as well as Gabriel Jesus is in the link-up play. The goal-scoring ability is not on the same level as Aguero, and there's nothing else there for City, and and I already documented the problems on the wings. But can Pep Guardiola win a league title when he doesn't have the most talented team? Um, it, it, it's a good question, right? Because right, Barcelona, Bayern, clearly the most talented teams at the time that he managed them. Um, I, I don't know if the answer so much is, oh, he doesn't have the most talented team, therefore he cannot win. I think it more that he doesn't have the players that he wants doing the things that he wants. He has, I think, the players that he has historically wanted, right? He he brought in, you know, a new kind of fresh attacking front three or, or almost attacking front, you could call it. He has obviously tried to revamp the, the defensive line, which is it's almost its own project of its own that hasn't gone well. But I, I think, interestingly enough, I think the midfield is where he has showed, you know, where his managerial genius shows up. And I know if those players so much are responding to what he wants anymore. And I think you told me this the other day, right? De Bruyne came out and kind of said, well, it's kind of the same thing year after year now. And there's there's kind of a feeling that what Pep is trying to do has gone stale with the players he has. And again, this isn't a knock on the players because I think that they're of incredible terms of talent, right? This is a team that we're talking about that reached 100 points in the Premier League. It, the core of the team is still the same, but the mentality of the team, I think, has shifted to the point where they aren't, I guess they've almost grown tired of trying to implement the same things that Pep has wanted them to do year after year after year, and it not yielding results, which is the same thing that happened at Barcelona and in some ways also happened at Bayern after he wasn't able to win the Champions League there. So I don't think it's so much... The question that, you know, can Pep win the Premier League without the most talented players? I think the question should be more so, can Pep win the Premier League with the players that he has, period? Because still, to me, that answer is no right now, unfortunately, because those players are not responding to what he wants to do. So I I, I think we had this conversation on Saturday. I, I don't think I see City or Liverpool winning the Premier League now based on just how the season has started. But if I had to answer your question, I'd probably say no. No, that that's a that's an interesting prediction there that maybe we'll get on to. I'll come back to a little later in the episode, but I I just want to push back a bit on the the fact that the core is still the same as the team that won the hundred points. It's you think about the losses in the last three years for Manchester City. Vincent Company retiring before the end of last season, before uh, the beginning of last season. And then moving on to uh, to Belgium, you lose David Silva this season, this past summer, right? And those are two mammoth players in this club in this club's recent history, right? And the impending departure of Sergio Aguero uh, in the next season, it, this team is. You, you hate to use the word rebuilding with a team like Manchester Manchester City, but there's a transition going on and that's where my reservations are just slightly holding me back on, on um, 
City's prospects this season with with Pep Guardiola himself because he hasn't had to rebuild a team that's already won, right? If, if that makes sense. Right? He hasn't had to do that in his career. Now, we can say he came into Manchester City and this team, it, it wasn't the most talented team, right? The team had obvious flaws in, in this first season um, while they were also trying to adapt to a new coach and playing style and whatnot. But that team did turn into a, a champions level team, but he hasn't had to do the other side of this where the team has won before he came or just before he came in or, or sorry, has won while he's in and he's had to kind of freshen the team up and go again with slightly different, with different players, with different star players, with different, with a different core. And it's not a knock on the manager, but it's definitely of note that you look at the teams that he went into when started coaching at Barcelona and Bayern Barcelona average age of the team when he joined and when he left was both just under 24, just under 24 years old average at Bayern. He joined the team 13, 14 and, and, they were just under 24 in average age as well. And when he left, the, the average age was 25, was just under 25. This Manchester City team, almost 20, almost average age of 26. So just, it's the oldest team that he has coached in terms of average age. And it's also a team that feels weirdly, I think we've talked about this before, in two different stages when you look at the player composition players who are in their prime and just kind of breaking through when you look at like a Foden, uh, Ferran Torres, and you look at the older players in terms of Aguero and more established players like Ed Ederson and Bernardo Silva, Kevin De Bruyne. It, it's an interesting composition in terms of age makeup throughout the team it's a big challenge for Pep Guardiola. It's, it's, it's not something that I think we're going to look back and say, Oh, because he couldn't win the league again after, you know, amassing 198 points in two seasons <laughs> that we're not going to look back and be like, Oh, well let's dock him for this, but it's a real challenge. And it's, it's something that I'm really excited to see how he overcomes it, but it's something that he's going to have to overcome. And, you don't have the most talented team. And, and, and perhaps let's see what happens. Um, Fabinho got injured for Liverpool today. We'll see how serious, serious that is, but it's not the heads and shoulders, most talented team in the league. And you're not going to be able to win games with just the talent alone. I think the league is too deep this season. And on top of all of that, you know, there's four years of game tape on this, on how Manchester city plays with these players. So it's, it's another challenge. He has to, he has to change something in the way they play. There's so much, there's so much game on, on, on how this team is going to set up. Right. I could not agree more. Basically everything you said, it's almost an unsolvable challenge. The only reason that I think it's not is because 
I look back at what Sir Alex Ferguson did kind of every three years and revamping his coaching staff and bringing in the fresh set of players, right? Starting with new ideas almost, but he lasted, I mean, how many years? That was impressive at United. You Decades, don't, you don't, yeah. yeah. Literally more than a decade. You don't see that anymore. And that, I think, is the biggest problem in kind of modern-day football is how do you sustain yourself for that long um, as a manager? I don't, I don't know if you do, quite honestly, because that's a problem that Pep is facing. And, and I, don't, I don't know if he has a solution, and I don't know if there is a solution. So, I, honestly, if you don't see Pep renew his contract until – or by – February, I would say uh, he's basically gone at the end of the season on, on his own terms, which I think is probably best, but um, yeah, he's, he's gone. So that's city for you. Um, probably still in a better spot than some other teams in the Premier league. Right. I would rather be city than Arsenal say, for example, a team that I picked to finish fourth this year, um, which is just, not working out well for me right now. I think everyone's top four is really screwed up anyway. But yeah, Arsenal this weekend playing Leicester, uh, a, a game that honestly, I thought Arsenal were going to win. I, I genuinely thought Arsenal had the upper hand in this game. I think on paper, Arsenal are the better team. But in the same way that honestly, I think there are a little, there are a couple of similarities between like Arsenal and Madrid. Real Madrid are just. A, in my opinion, not a good team, um, but also just they just don't show up really right now. Like in terms of form, they just don't. And I think Arsenal really just did not show up against Leicester. And I, I think that there are a lot of questions that need to start to be asked, not necessarily of Arteta, but more so the squad. And if the squad is actually capable of living up to what Mikel Arteta wants to do. Um, so Rian, what were your thoughts on Arsenal this weekend? Because I think we might have differing opinions on this. I, I don't know if it's, I don't know if we can blame Arteta for what's going on right now. That's, that's my thought. I I don't want to say this and, and be like, okay, I'm to I dislike Arteta, Arteta. I, I think he's a bad manager, anything like that. But I mean, Ellie, you and I have talked a lot about, or I have definitely talked to you a lot about how I feel this Arsenal team is more defensive than, or not the Arsenal team, Mikel Arteta himself might be a far more defensive coach than we would like to give credit to a former assistant coach of Pep Guardiola, right? Or what we would expect from an assistant coach of Pep Guardiola, right? We've seen Arsenal score beautiful team goals under Arteta so far, but this might be another thing of, he hasn't been with the team for four years, right? But the game tape on how those goals are constructed. And, and I really do implore people to look back on, especially the goals against Manchester city in the FA cup, and against Liverpool in the Community Shield. And even look at um, their goal against Chelsea as well in, in the FA Cup final. Uh, the second goal, I think, is, is the Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang goal where very similar movements, right? And it's very orchestrated. And 
everyone is doing a certain thing and, and not necessarily is it, you know, fluidity, not necessarily is it a you know, creative freedom. It's, it's more of something that is constructed, right? And when a team does what Leicester did this past weekend, where they don't press high up on Arsenal and allow those passing movements to play out, which happen when the teams press high and, and Arsenal has been drawing teams out to be able to play these uh, great combinations. It's when that doesn't happen is where you're wondering why through 60 or odd minutes uh, until he's injured and has to go off. Why Arsenal's most potent attacking threat is David Luiz playing cross field balls and and granted he was playing them great because Lester was giving him the time and that was obviously the strategy for Lester was even as David Luiz was playing was seemingly getting all this time to to switch the play out to the out to the fullbacks for Arsenal Lester were very much okay with that with dealing with crosses which generally are easier to deal with than than any than any balls being played into the penalty area from the central uh, area of the field right but just the questions need to be asked is there's no creativity coming from the central area of arsenal there's none there, there's literally nothing right and you add on top of that the fact that nicola pepe is, is still not getting starts for Arsenal. And this is, we're coming up almost on a year of Arteta being the coach. And we can't say anymore that it's, oh, he's, he's just working Pepe into his team. It's an obvious thing. If he's not starting him during, especially during this past weekend, when Willian is injured and he's not able to play. So the first choice winger who it's already weird that Willian is playing more minutes than Nicola Pepe if he's not going to start him in that match, then there's an obvious problem that Mikel Arteta has with Nicola Pepe, but that's uh, probably a conversation for another day. As a whole, it's a team that misses a creative central midfielder. Wait, so are you, are you saying that Danny Ceballos should start for Arsenal? Are Really, no, he does start. No, he does start. He's. He, I mean, he's not. Cre- he has only recently started. First no, off, and no, he, he is- started. No, no, no. He started in almost every game in the in the last three weeks. He started oh. every game, and he is not the answer to the creative problems in the in the team. He played this weekend. It's. Well, I, don't it's think, not- I don't think Herrera is the, was the answer either. But he Lucas is, Herrera wasn't, wasn't starting. Playing. Lucas Herrera wasn't starting. No, Lucas but, Herrera. But my point is, they didn't have anyone that was remotely creative beforehand, right? And I agree. It's it's not getting, I just don't think it's Sabah I don't think Sabias is is the answer is is the answer. He played. He's played in these games. He has played fair enough, know, on these fair games. Enough. He's he's not the he's not the creative spark that I'm looking for. I'm talking <laughs> about the guy who's not even registered for the Premier League season and the ah. Europa League season. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about Mesut Ozil. Uh, it's, yes. it's <laughs> as, as Arteta would say to you, who 
it's I mean, it's just at this point, it has nothing to do with soccer reasons. The reason why why Mesut Ozil is out is not gonna be playing for this team this season. And it's I don't know if we'll ever know the full extent of what has truly gone wrong in that situation. We know that Mesut Ozil turned down reducing his wages, but he had a reason because even after everyone else reduced their wages, and, and it was 55, valid, yeah, uh, even <laughs> after his wages, everyone else reduced their wages, there were 55 people laid off from Arsenal. And just a few weeks later, they triggered the release clause on Thomas Partey. So they must've had the money somewhere, right? It's honestly uh, the, the most baffling situation I think in the Premier League right now is Mesut Ozil, who is almost definitely Arsenal's most creative player. The icing out of a player who's won a World Cup and has been over the last decade one of the best number 10s in Europe. And even at this age and in this point in his career where we know he's going to be a defensive liability, but for him to not make the Premier League squad for this season and to actively choose to not have that type of player to come on in games exactly like this, exactly like what we saw over the weekend where 15 minutes in, you knew what Leicester's plan was. Jamie Vardy couldn't play the entire game. So they played the first 60 minutes to hold the the score at at what it was, compress the middle of the field, and bring Jamie Vardy on for the last half hour. And Jamie Vardy did what he always does. He scored. (laughs) And and he made it extremely difficult for Arsenal's uh, center backs who couldn't deal with his runs, with his off-ball movement. And, I mean, it was a wonderful goal from Leicester, a great ball from Yuri Tielemans. And uh, Cengiz Under, who just came um, over from Roma this past summer, could be a really good signing for for Leicester. He gets the assist. And just like that, I mean, hats off to Leicester and Brendan Rodgers because the game plan worked perfectly. It was exactly what they wanted to do. And and in the end, Arsenal are still left with a team that can't create a thing, really, from, from the middle of the field. And everything is happening out wide. And it's a lot of pressure on guys like Bukayo Saka to be the person who's supposed to supply all these chances. Lacazette was so poor in that game. And it it doesn't help that Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is basically playing as a left winger most of the time. And I saw a stat that he's at his lowest um, shot total through six games in his career. And he's had eight shots in the first six games of the season. And that's unacceptable, really, from, from a, a player who – and I'm not blaming him. It's unacceptable that last year's Golden Boot winner is not being put in positions to actually score, really. You know, a lot of these shots – his goal against Fulham came from outside of the – or inside of the box, I believe, or just on the edge of the box, but he's not getting 
chances around the penalty area, which is where he thrives. I mean, the great thing about Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, who's, who is a great finisher in general, but also he gets into great areas and he, and he does, he scores all types of, all types of goals. That's, that's what makes him a world-class striker. And yeah, I mean, we, we have to, we have to throw some shade at Mikel Arteta because as much credit as we've given him for coming in and stabilizing this team, like I'll always say that defending well is a lot easier than creating chances. And he's done the easy part, which granted for a long time was the hard part for Arsenal, but now it's you, you have to create chances in this team that since 2014 through six games, this is the lowest expected goals total for Arsenal. We're sitting at 6.9 right now. It's, it's not good enough. It's really not good enough from, from Arsenal. They're in the bottom half of expected goals through, through six, the first six games. You're talking about a team that's sitting lower than, lower than crystal palace. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I agree with you. It's funny how I guess those two problems shifted right from defending now to actually creating chances. Um, And there is, I think, a direct correlation between having Mesut Ozil as a part of your team and not having Mesut Ozil as a part of your team. Mesut Ozil over 30 still over part of your, you know, as a part of your team is still going to give you a lot. And I, I don't think any of us could tell you what politically went down within Arsenal to, to have him not be a part of the squad, but just, just think about it financially for a second, because that's all Arsenal thinks about. Apparently you're spending $300,000 a week, right? On one of the world's best number tens to have him really tweet about your game with fans. That is all you're doing. And the club still has the audacity to lay off and furlough staff that work for the club as if this is not or as if this is a justified decision to leave him out of the squad and not have him involved in any way. I, I just think that's so massively irresponsible and just basically a massive middle finger to not only the people that work for Arsenal, but also the fans who should have some semblance of value and belief that the club should adhere to. But uh, apparently that went out the window. So I honestly just don't know what to believe of our, to think of Arsenal from a political standpoint, from a footballing standpoint, uh, Rian, I agree wholeheartedly that now their biggest problem is finding ways to actually attack and design or design some sort of fluid system for Arteta that he can implement with the players that he has. Cause I don't think Arsenal are going to get any new top signings in the next year, both because of their transfer budget and because of COVID. But it's interesting that you brought up the two, I guess, FA cup goals against city and Arsenal, because yes, it, it very much reminded me of like Pep telling like every player where to be at any given time. And that's how the play was going to work. There was no creativity that was really allowed, which is maybe from a footballing perspective, part of why Mesut Ozil didn't make the squad. Um, that's a, yeah. I mean, yeah, that, I, I guess that could be a part of it. I mean, by that logic, he should just not be starting or he should be on the on the bench. But for him not making the squad, I think that's political. So him not playing might have to do partially also with that. So I'll leave it at that with Arsenal. But, man, 
I was really, I was really just expecting bigger things from them. Um, and the world's delivered. I'll leave it with this. He's the world's most expensive social media account manager. <laughs> it's truly look, very expensive. You're spending basically $10 million a year doing that. Like, no, over that. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and talk about the nap that I actually took during the United Chelsea game at Freon's place. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here back from our break to talk to you a little bit about that nap that I took during the United Chelsea game. Um, So I was outside in Rion's backyard in Brooklyn, and I could feel my eyes slowly shutting after the second half had progressed about 20 minutes in. And uh, all of a sudden, towards the end of the match, we see a shot by, I believe, Marcus Rashford, saved gloriously by Mendy. And um, while I was very happy for Mendy, I'm very pissed off that I had to wait 90 full minutes before something interesting in this match happened. Rian, why in God's name was that the most boring match that I've watched all season? And that is also topping the Barcelona-Hatafe game last weekend that we watched together. What the hell did I watch? Why did you waste my time? <laughs> uh, I think I think... I think simply it was two coaches who really didn't want to lose that game. I I, I think it might be as simple as that. You look at the, the two lineups going in, Chelsea played three at the back and Manchester United didn't play Paul Pogba or Donny Van de Beek uh, or start them. I should say didn't start. Donny Van de Beek or Paul Pogba, which is what they did last week as well against Newcastle United and brought on Pogba and Van de Beek close to the end of that game. And that kind of turned the tide and, and got them the win against Newcastle. But it was just two teams who, who apparently just didn't want to lose. And, and I think more than I think for Manchester United, it might have been I think it was more of a they couldn't lose because their last match at Old Trafford was the six one loss to Tottenham and and they are still, even after the draw winless at home this season, winless in the last five overall matches at Old Trafford, which is stunning for for Manchester United. While on the Chelsea side, I, I think it's, we're a week on from that, the Southampton result. And now it's two straight nil, nil draws after Lampard's first 60 odd games where there was not a single nil nil draw from Chelsea. Now it's, it's a team that's right now in this stage where they're trying to, I, I would say that they are trying to build a foundation defensively. And so what that means in this context is that they have gone fully to the other side of the pendulum Whereas last week we had a 3-3 draw where it was just explosions, feelings, uh, just get the ball up front, right? And and then hope that we don't make individual mistakes. It's the complete opposite right now. Um, and they're they're just trying to to limit those mistakes as much as possible. And, and we'll see if it's a foundation that is solid enough to last throughout the season for when 
the attackers need to produce more uh, on, a, on a more consistent basis. And, and it's, you know, still that kind of um, process of, I think, building chemistry in the attack. It, it's a long, we, we said this at the beginning of the season, it's going to be a long process to, for that to be fluid on a consistent basis. And so it, it, in the end, like you said, yeah, it was an extremely boring game. I, I, I tweeted that, you know, it was the most sober game of the, of the Premier League season. Turned out the, the entire weekend was very <laughs> sober. The entire Gosh. weekend in the Premier League was very, very sober. It's like everyone watched, everyone played the first five or so weeks, and it was like, all right, I'm having none of that. We're having, everyone in England was, was out. It's like the first five weeks of the season was so, so disgusting to to English soccer's like core goals going in on a, on this basis. Oh. Enough of it. Enough of it. So you saw a weekend of a lot of more normal soccer, but a lot of games where the combined XG between teams was like under two and under one and a half in some cases. So it's like, it it was a definite concerted effort, I think, from a lot of teams this weekend. But on top of all that, Marcus Rashford has two very good chances uh, I mean, the, the second, the second one is, is a harder chance than the first, but, but in the first half, he has a, he's through on goal and it's a great save from Mendy. And the second half is an even better save at the end. Um, and Chelsea don't look now have a goalkeeper that the players on the field might actually trust. So it, it's, it's, that's, 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 that's pretty what, huge. Specifically yeah, yeah. Zuma can trust, but sure. <laughs> I mean, definitely the fans trust Mendy more. Like that would have been, it could have been anyone. It could have been you and Nat Elias and the Chelsea fans probably would have trusted you more than Kepa <laughs> at that point. But just to put it into numbers here and before I, I guess, um, kind of explain it, but so there's a stat called post-shot expected goals, which Different from normal expected goals where what's taken into account is the amount of defenders in the way and the type of pass and the actual type of shot and how far away you are from goal. Post-shot expected goal is purely the speed and the placement of the shot itself and, and what the likely outcome is, is of a shot placed in that specific point part of the of the goal and from the distance and, and how fast it's going. Last season, Kepa posted a post shot XG of negative nine point six, which means that from, <laughs> from what? Yeah, from the shot from the from the shots that were taken on him, you would expect you would expect that nine of uh, just about a nine goal, nine point nine and a half goal difference. Nine and a half of the goals that went in would have been saved by the average keeper. Is is it is? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! I did not know it was that bad. Yeah, and this past weekend, Edward Mendy was the first Chelsea goalkeeper since. December of 2018 to overperform his post shot XG by more than 1.0. And it, it just, wow. yeah, wow. it's just, 
it, it really puts into perspective what happened last season and, and really where the issues were. And, and as much as um, the Chelsea team and Frank Lampard as a coach got a lot of flack for the amount of goals going in, it's, I feel like I said it a couple times last season that all of the underlying numbers of, you know, the, ex, the expected goals allowed and, and the and the amount of actual shots that are going into, you know, Chelsea giving up, like, in the top five, a few shots being given up um, last season. It's like all of that. There was just one glaring issue. And, and in the end, look, a, a center mid loses the ball in the middle of the field and a counterattack begins and a, and a goal is scored, right? It, it's harder for us to look at that and say, oh my gosh, the center mid is terrible. But because there are so many other things that happen before the goal, actually the ball goes into the back of the net for a goalkeeper. This is obvious, but nine times out of 10, your mistake is going to end up in a conceded goal. And, you know, in soccer, soccer they, they talk about the availability heuristic and in the book, they, they relate it to, um, scouts that are drawn to players with blonde hair more than any other type of player. It, for, for in this case, you know, we're drawn to the mistakes of the goalkeeper, and, and that is easier to point out. And that's where I feel bad for Kevin because all of his mistakes lead to goals. But you know, at the same time, for a team as a whole, that's the most glaring area where where if there's any deficiencies you're doomed. So you really, you really threw him under the bus there with some like actual logic, which I was fully not prepared for. Not saying that you don't normally have that. Just saying that you really went out of your way <laughs> to find evidence that pointed to Kepa being the problem, which, okay. We, I think we can all agree I, that. I, 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 should, I, should say, I should say, I should say, I mean, don't give me too much credit because I, I have known about those post shot XG numbers since last since like the last third of last season, and <laughs> and I've kept it quietly to myself. Or <laughs> I've kept it oh quietly my to God. myself because because until I'm Chelsea to get, signed a new keeper, basically, pretty pretty much. I, I guess in the <laughs> end that is what happened. <laughs> but I was kind of I, I looked I looked I saw it once at the at I think sometime after the. Uh, season got suspended and I saw that and I was like, yikes. Wow. This is even worse than I thought. But, uh, but no, it, the overarching thing is very happy that there's a goalkeeper that the team trusts more than anything. And that's, and that's where Chelsea are right now. And there's still a lot of work to be done. There's still a lot of work to be done in United sense too, is they're still, I mean, still trying to find a way to make, Paul Pogba work in their team. And that's something that we've been saying now for four years. So it's, these are two teams that are both, I think without an identity right now. And um, two two teams without identities though. I I agree. Um, And that will be, again, I always call it out when I think of it title of the pod this week, two teams without identities, but anyway, so Rian, what are your other thoughts on some of the other results throughout the Premier League? 
Obviously, United Chelsea was a snooze fest, but there has to be something else that was mildly of interest in our sober weekend throughout the uh, the Premier League, which might honestly be the alternate name of the podcast: Sober Weekend in England. But just just we just got a a little dose of sobriety this weekend, really, right? It um, now the big the, the biggest news I think outside of what we've already spoken about is Everton finally losing this weekend. Um, both Everton and Aston Villa, the, the last two teams to lose in the in the Premier League. Everton, they were very ordinary against Southampton and huge, huge, huge props. I always try to give him props when, whenever Southampton come up with a good result in Ralph Hassan Huddle. As on the same day they beat Everton, one year, one day, one uh, year prior was the nine nil loss to Leicester. One year on from that, Southampton did not panic and fire their manager because I should also note that they were in relegation zone after that nine nil loss. That loss put them into relegation zone, but they stuck with their manager. They finished eleventh. They come into this season. First six games, their best start in six years. And so huge props to Ralph Hasenhuttle, who, who I will keep banging on as a great coach, a great, great coach that deserves an opportunity at a, at a, at another, at a um, bigger club. If it, if the opportunity comes along, he did a great job with Leipzig before Julian Nagelsmann went in. So uh, Everton loses, Luca Dean gets sent off. Uh, it, it's, it's, not anything to panic about, I think, yet for, for Everton, but they miss Seamus Coleman a lot. They play Ben Godfrey at right back, who's a center back. So that, that's not ideal. And now they're going to, they're missing their two fullbacks. Possibly they'll, they'll miss Luca Dean for the next three games. And, and we'll see if Seamus Coleman comes back this upcoming weekend. But those are two massive losses for them. Um, and it was just a very ordinary. Uh, ordinary performance from Everton. But meanwhile, on Friday, Aston Villa went lost three nil to Leeds on a Patrick Bamford hat trick, which was a wonderful hat trick, by the way. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I just had to continue. <laughs> a wonderful, wonderful hat trick from Patrick Bamford. Um, and you know. I, what else do we have to say about Leeds? They were they were fantastic in the second half. I thought the first half was somewhat it was pretty even, um, and Aston Villa had a couple chances to score, but Leeds were just so good in the second half. And this is a a team that plays so well, not individually but as a team. It's every attack the players seem to know exactly where the next pass is. And I, I, you, at least you know how much I love teams where the players just know where the next pass is or just know where the team, their teammates are going to be when they're in certain areas. And it's, it's fun to watch every week. I mean, it's fun to watch every Leeds game, but they were spectacular in the second half against Aston Villa and, Props to them. Um, again, no, no need to panic on Aston Villa. They, 
we're not expecting them to finish in the top four, so <laughs> it's not it's not anything dire there. And they were just outplayed oh. by by a better team. <laughs> like yep. they're outplayed by by a team that you look at the chaos that team. I was gonna say you look at the chaos in the Premier League and you know, Leeds have a great chance of finishing as high as even six this season. I mean, really, if they if they're able to keep this energy up throughout the entire season and you got to think about the fact that all of the top four teams from last season and uh, fifth through seventh are playing in the Europa League and and Champions League every week. There's no, it's not two weeks between Champions League games anymore. You're talking three games a week for the next four to week, four to five weeks, right? It's it, it's a great opportunity for Leeds, especially to to get, I think, into the top. Six at least throughout the first half of the season, uh, they'll they'll be able to actually recover for games at a at a much higher rate than others. Uh, and you throw on top of that the fact that they play right now, they're probably the most consistent team attacking wise in terms of creating chances and and scoring goals. We'll see how we'll see how well. Patrick Bamford does, does going through going on throughout the season in terms of his finishing, but you have nothing but good things to say about Leeds. So it's another great result. Can you imagine shitting on a man named Marcelo Bielsa? Can you imagine? You, you, you probably have the mafia coming after you. Don't do that anyway. But yes, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think having watched back the Astonville Leeds game specifically, um, Leeds are just a specially coached team. Like I, I can't, I just cannot stress enough how important Marcelo Bielsa is to Leeds' identity. Right? We just talked about how Chelsea and United teams with loads of talent, teams with in a you know just immense attacking flair, supposedly um, are struggling because they don't have an identity. And and what I think an identity means to Leeds is a team that has an idea of how to play through the tough times and through the good times. Right. And, and that is very, very hard to come by. The only team, you know, I think the only other teams in England that do that well, Liverpool in the last four years, city in the last four years. Other than that, I, I would find, you have to really find me a team other than mate Pochettino Spurs that played with a proper identity. Yeah. That's a good shout. Pochettino, yeah. Versus Pochettino is a good shout. Yeah. But other than that, I, I think that's why this Leeds team is so special. And maybe I should have picked them to finish top four instead of Arsenal. So I guess only time will tell. And, and we'll probably know a little more by Christmas or I guess with the timeline shift a little after Christmas. So with that, I think that wraps up all of the England games that we want to get to. Rian, did I, did I miss anything? You usually correct me when I, when I do. Uh, I guess so you can throw, just throw in Tottenham winning against Burnley yesterday. Uh, no, no, no. In, in a game that, no in a game cares. that I, I, yeah, a game that I just, I described to our friend Desmond, a, a Tottenham fan. It was like watching an, a Burnley intra squad training match, honestly. Uh, Tottenham scores on, on a set piece and another assist for Harry Kane, another goal for, for Hungman's son, who's now who's leading um, the Premier League in, in goals, and Harry Kane is at eight assists through six games. He's already eclipsed his uh, best ever tally in terms of assists for a season. And um, 
No, it, I, I love that duo, by the way. I mean, you can hate Spurs all you want and whatever, but they're just a fantastic duo. They're just nice guys, you know? Yeah, the chem- I mean, the chemistry is is on another level right now. They're the best attacking duo in Europe. It it's, can't even be argued. So, it, yeah, I, I, think, I think the last thing from the weekend was just that sneakily, Tottenham might be a team, is a team that knows their identity, I think, right now too they're they're a team that i think knows their identity and is it enough to win the league i only time will tell i think elias and i you were both pretty bearish on that (laughs) right so yeah let's let's hold off on that for a second but i i I will say i think that they are looking more likely than any of the, the top six teams from last or sorry than any of the teams that finished outside of the top four i'd honestly even go from third down uh, they're looking more likely than any of them to actually show the consistency to make it into the top four again. So. I I kind of agree. Unfortunately, <laughs> I didn't think that I would be saying that about Spurs, but yeah, they're they're in a pretty good position right now. And again, hey, second season Mourinho. That's all I'm saying. They, yeah, they they are fully a Mourinho team now. I no doubt about that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, no, no one is doubting that. But I'm just saying, second season Mourinho is something else. So it's it's the the Zidane Black Magic equivalent, I will say. So I'll leave you guys with that thought. And uh, Rian, as always, did correct me that I missed the Tottenham game, which is fair because they are playing well. So shout out to Spurs, and uh, we'll see if that actually continues. I have my doubts still, but fair play to them so far. With that, I think that wraps up the pod. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. And as always, we'll be back soon with the La Liga portion of this week's pod. Maybe we'll even review the El Clasico. I I also hate that I just called it the El Clasico. It's just El Clasico, by the way. Maybe we'll review it. TBD. Thanks, guys. (laughs) 